0: suddenly aware of, her, right. of, my, of my height as I stand on this platform, <laughs> <laughs> And of all your beauty, isn't this so incredible? I think you know since, um, since lockdown, gatherings like this have had a big impact on me, and for me, that, that worship was just electric. I'm part of a, a global group of churches that we often come together from all over the world, and there'll be 10 languages in the room. And I've gotten into the habit of just sitting in, in worship songs. That could be in any language you can imagine, or a mix of five or ten of them, and just letting it wash over me. And it always is the most uplifting moment for me of any worship service. So, um, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you, incredible worship team. Um, I noticed that Irish hymn on St Patrick's Day, and I'd like to just pay homage to that fact. <laughs> I have. Uh, don't tell them. <laughs> I would, okay, I'm doing my best here. I'm doing my best. Look, I am a Pentecostal, so I'm going to do this. God is good. All the time. And all the time. God <laughs> is good. There we go. I have permission because it's my own background. Um, <laughs> and curatato, I hope I've had a lot of lessons in pronunciation. I hope Curatato, I hope that's right. The indigenous people of my country uh, that I minister on will say, when they welcome people, that's the language of the Gadigal people. Um, And in Warang, which is the cove upon which the city of Sydney was built, that's where I minister, uh, and I live in the land of the Wangal people. And so I understand that in this country, what you do is you acknowledge country, and then you bring greetings from your ancestors as well. So part of the reason I was trying to appreciate what you all did over there um, is on my mother's side, I have Irish ancestry. On my father's side, I have English ancestry. And may my people greet your people. I hope that that blessing will be... You know, I'm um, conscious of my height, conscious of my Australianness, and I feel like there are some... Some experts in language here. So just be, please interrupt me. The Pentecostals interrupt their preachers all the time. It doesn't bother us. It feeds us with energy. <laughs> interrupt me. Oh. Yell the correct pronunciation at me. I will, I will be grateful for learning something in that moment. And usually when I preach, I, I really enjoyed the fact that I think it was Estelle did three fun facts about herself in just one sentence. And I have two pages of three fun facts about myself. <laughs> right here. In fr- I always think it's great to do fun facts about yourself because then we have a kind of a relationship before I start preaching at you. Um, and today I'm, I'm speaking about identity. And I'm talking about especially how our, um, our queer identity is the image of God. You know, how that chapter from Ephesians chapter 1 says, you know, we are people who are chosen and beloved. We are people who have been destined by God to come into the presence of God. And that's something worth celebrating. And that's who we are. That's our identity. And then I realized if I'm preaching on identity and being genuine, then my fun facts otherwise i'm being a bit of a hypocrite they have to be super genuine and i like fun facts about me that make me look really good i don't know if this happens <laughs> especially like anyone here who's like on, on greeting at church and is always welcoming new people well that when you're just introducing yourself to someone and say oh, tell me something about yourself you want to you want to go for the good stuff in that moment right if if you like hiking uh, and you have a passion for like like cooking like big roasted dinners and you know you have all this great stuff about yourself you like reading classical literature you want to drop all that stuff my best night is binge watching RuPaul's Drag Race and eating a tub of ice cream. that's my best night can I get an amen up in here that's my best night and so that's my first Fun fact is going to be that, my love of, of RuPaul and whole tubs of ice cream. And if I'm, you know, the reality is uh, I feel like I have more fun doing that than I do like cooking a whole meal and let's face it, washing up after that. It's, that's a lot. I'm preaching on the goodness of our identity today. That's real. That's a big part of who I am. Now, this leads me to something which I wanted to say, and I realize that it has the potential to make everyone here either love me or hate me, or a little bit of both. And so I'm going to start, I'm going to start with the good news. RuPaul's Drag Race, Down Under, the most recent season, my favorite queen was Anita Wiggler. Does anyone know Anita Wiggler? My favorite that's the, that's the good news. It's, it gets a bit rocky after that. Do you know what I love about Anita, I feel like more than any queen on that season, uh, she projected this good-heartedness. She would always make sure the other, everyone else in the room was okay. And I, by the end of the season, I wasn't rooting for any of the Aussie queens. I was rooting for Anita Wiglet, the, the New Zealand queen. So if I had one person to pick as a best friend from that season, I reckon it'd be Anita. My favorite queen of all time, however, is the Reverend Dr. Silky Nutmeg Ganache. <laughs> Don't cheer yet. It's I've warned you. I've warned you. This is going to a dark place. This is, <laughs> this is why I love Silky because the first time I, I saw her competing in a show, she sat down at a piano that looked a lot like that one right there. And she just belted out some worship tunes and she led RuPaul's Drag Race in a session of Pentecostal worship. Second fun fact about me, Pentecostal. I let that I let that slip earlier on. I may make it slip a few more times. That's why I loved it. Old time gospel. And my love language is being led in a set of old-time gospel songs. That's my, It's not on the list of love languages. I just love that. I just appreciate it so much. She instantly became my favorite queen of all time and has been until this day. And this is the bit that I'm scared to tell you because just now, this last season, some of you are laughing, so you may know where this is going. Canada versus the world. It came down to Anita versus Silky. And I was rooting for Silky the whole time. My favourite down under queen, my favourite queen of all time, I'm like, send her home. Send, send her back to New Zealand. Send her home. And she won and I was happy when she left. That's just the God honest truth that I'm sharing with you today. I'm so glad that you're laughing at this because I was writing at this thing, is anyone going to find this funny? I hope. If you want, I can leave now if you feel betrayed. But, you know... Third fun fact, which this one's going to be quick. Um, I was wondering when I wrote this sermon, one thing, whether I was talking about drag queens too much. Because (laughs) you probably haven't noticed. The topic has come up a couple of times so far. Just weaved in and out. I have recently been researching the unique spiritual gifts that queer people bring. And, you know, what I'm learning is that drag queens embody a lot of spiritual practices. They have a lot of spiritual truth that they say and the way they lead. And it's not that other parts of the queer community and other expressions of gender don't have all of that going on, but with queens it's so obvious that it's really easy to research. So I've just been paying a lot of attention to that. I recently wrote um, a a paper on Ephesians um, and I I read Ephesians through the lens of RuPaul. And that's why I just wanted to bring this up a little bit. And then I said, tone it down. Not everyone is gonna love that said that to myself and then a week ago did anyone see what happened in Tennessee they made a law saying that from now on drag performance is banned in public I'm not holding anything back this evening here's your third fun fact about me this is the funnest of them all when I see an injustice like that I start talking about it more than ever When I see an injustice like that, I'm going to respond. I'm going to talk about drag in solidarity with the queer community of Tennessee every chance I get as long as that law is on course. And that's why I have permission to talk about my favorite TV show all night long tonight. That's the reason. So those are my fun facts. This next one technically is not on the list of fun facts. I'm going to call it fun fact four. I've been a pastor for 16 years. In that time, I've probably taught 20 classes on LGBT affirming theology. Some of them in a room full of people like this. Some of them sitting at a table in a cafe with one person who just needs to know that material. And you know, some of you will have experienced, you know, just recently what that's like. You take five Bible verses, maybe 10 Bible verses, depending on... You know, we have a lot more. Everyone says there's five Bible verses. Pentecost, we have more Bible verses than anyone else. We had 10. We had 10 Bible verses. You go through, and often, you know, it's this week we're doing Leviticus, this week we're doing Deuteronomy, and you go through the material. You look at Roman, ancient Roman sexuality. How does that work? You know, what was... What, why are Adam and Eve described as being one flesh? all of this stuff, and you do the hard work of deconstructing word by word and line by line and all of this effort, and then what we're really doing when we do that is we're deconstructing our shame and we're deconstructing our fear and we're deconstructing our self-hatred sometimes. That's the work that we're doing. But just in the last few years, I noticed something more and more often, I saw a pattern more and more often, that I would do a lot of work with someone, and some people will come to that class with 20 questions, uh, why is this word next to this word? You know, I always I always come and, you know, you try and be very approachable, but you also have a Greek New Testament, a Hebrew lexicon, like a ancient pictures of, of Roman situations that will make clear what you're describing. And, all the material that you need and people will ask every last question and this is what I've seen sometimes most often from people who have been struggling with the self-hatred and the fear and the shame maybe for 20, 30 years maybe for their entire adult life they'll get through every question every question will be answered and their needle hasn't moved they're exactly where they were and that started to bother me and part of the reason that it bothered me was that I feel like there's nothing that could be brought to this conversation. I've started asking people, what, actual, what would you need in order to be convinced? And more and more often that question has been difficult for people to answer. And some people have said to me, I think the real problem is I answer all these questions and then there's still all that self-hatred and shame there. It hasn't moved. Like I've changed, a lot of people have talked about neural pathways, right? You know, we've, we've changed a lot of the stuff a lot of the stuff on the surface, but these old habits are built deep into us, and we just—you know—we just look at all the information there is accurate and it's true, but I can't—I can't undo what I learned as a child. I can't unlearn, you know, what I spent years teaching to other people when we've been exploited by reparative practice programs to become the leaders of these movements. It's, it's also built into me. And so I wanted to know, what does it take to actually do something for that? And the answer that I've come to is, we're on the defensive. When we come with five or ten Bible verses, and we have to defend ourselves against each and every one of those, and we have to have all our answers to the questions that other people are asking us, we are on the defensive, and that's disempowering. And I think that when we feel disempowered, we're actually not able to do deep work. We need to know power. You know, my two key words, people said, what are you preaching on this week? I'm like, identity and power. That's it. I don't have any phrases. I don't have any catch. Identity and power is what I want to talk about. That's why I've loved Ephesians so much recently. And what I want to know now is, what are the insights that queer people bring to Scripture? What about the questions that we want to ask about it? Instead of the questions that other people have been asking us. Love what about, what about love, and love and forgiveness? Right? That would be a good thing. I think, you know, we just heard the reading. St. Patrick's Day, there we are again. The reading from today. Jesus is like, gosh, what do I want to focus on? What's the most important commandment? I want to go straight to love. That's Jesus saying, this is the perspective that I want us to take. And it's a perspective that the queer community gets really well. Love and justice and forgiveness and truth. These are the things that Jesus, who wasn't big into answering anyone's questions, was just constantly bringing people's attention back to the big important things that really matter. We need to remember this Bible is our book just as much as it's anybody else's book. Can I get an amen up in here? It's ours. We have things that we want to say about it. And we never get a chance to say them when all we do is answer questions that other people have decided to ask us. Those aren't our questions. It's not our job to come up with an answer. What I'm talking about today is a queer reading of the Bible. This is when we move from apologetics and defense in affirming theology to say, I'm going to read the scripture from the perspective that I bring it. And I realize that for me, the question that I want to bring to Scripture is who am I when I stand before God? That question matters to me. I've spent my life working on that question. Who am I? My divine image. My ability to have love and joy and peace. And walk into a room like that and bring that in with me. My belovedness. Before the source who created me. My worth and my power. That's why I love Ephesians. You know, every single letter of Paul, I've noticed this recently, he opens by saying something about people's identity. Usually he says, you're saints, which means the holy ones, right? That's a big thing to be called, the saints. He starts most every letter saying, you are saints. But in Ephesians, I don't know what happens. Some flip gets switched. And he just writes a whole chapter on who we are when we stand before God. It's like that one word in most of the letters gets expanded into this big prayer. And do you know what it says about us? It says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are blessed, and we're forgiven. Are we forgiven for being gay? Well, we may not need to be forgiven for being gay. But there are things I'd like to be forgiven for. I want to be forgiven for saying Anita had to go home. I'm so sorry. I can't, I need to work on that and not try to get forgiveness about my sexual orientation, which was never a problem to begin with. Ephesians says we are forgiven, Ephesians says we are chosen by God and we are given a destiny. This is my favorite thing. It comes up, if you read this chapter, this sentence goes on over and over. Paul keeps on saying, who bring praise and glory to God. You're a people who bring praise and glory to God. If there was something wrong with us, then we wouldn't be a people who bring praise and glory to God. If we weren't beloved, we wouldn't have been chosen. If, there was, if we were defective, nobody would say we were blessed with every spiritual blessing. This is the apologetic that I want to use. When I talk to churches that are struggling with being affirming, I don't want to just spend an hour on a verse in Leviticus. I want to spend an hour on Ephesians chapter 1. That's what I want to do. That's where my focus is. I'm God's masterpiece. That's in chapter 2. This identity stuff keeps bleeding out into all the other chapters, keeps coming back. I'm God's master. That word masterpiece is used once in the entire New Testament. I feel like a lot of the translations are kind of scared of using it. Eugene Peterson uses masterpiece in the message, paraphrase of the Bible. But that book, if you want to talk about Greek words, is only used when a master craftsperson has made something unreplaceable of an artwork. You're God's masterpiece. How's that for an apologetic, for queer identities? Okay, Romans, Corinthians, Leviticus. Do you know that I'm God's masterpiece? Do you know that about me? Do you know that you're God's masterpiece? The conversation's kind of wrapped up from my perspective at that point. There's not much more that I feel like I need to say. I'm God's masterpiece. And you know God doesn't make mistakes. You know that. We know that. The churches who know that don't know it. <laughs> the churches who say that they know that, they haven't figured it out just yet. And I think if we lean into our queer perspective and our queer reading on scripture, and we feel this power, you know, and we feel this belovedness of God, and we and we look at ourselves in the mirror, and sometimes... Sometimes affirming these things isn't very natural to us. We look in the mirror and maybe, you know, maybe your affirmation isn't yet I'm God's masterpiece. Maybe you can look in the mirror and say, Scripture says I'm God's masterpiece and I'm learning how to believe it. Maybe that's an affirmation that you can use, right? But if we start affirming these things, you know, I really believe that's going to go deeper into those neural pathways. We're going to start to understand who and what we are. On a, on a, I'm going to go back to RuPaul. So, <laughs> you knew I was. Yeah. <laughs> You'd laugh. <laughs> you knew I was coming back. Does anyone know the name Isis Couture? Is that a familiar name? I'm really scanning for the people who've watched a lot of Canada, the Canada stuff. That, Isis Couture was a favourite to win Canada versus the world. Because she just won another season. She was really strong and really powerful. In episode four, everyone's getting started, and they're sitting there with their mirrors in the dressing room, and she's not concentrating. She keeps forgetting what she's doing. She starts crying, right? Silky comes over and gives her a big bear hug. It's this beautiful moment, right? This is is pastoral care. (laughs) Colin, before before we came in here today, Colin took me aside, held my hands, prayed for my anointing and gave me a hug, right? A lot of this energy up here, that comes from that. Reverend Dr. Silky brought that pastoral care into that situation and said, you need to take care of you first. And ISIS made the decision, I'm going home. I'm going home because I'm overwhelmed and I'm not coping and I'm crying and I don't know why and everyone says we love you don't regret this you're amazing she was the favorite to win she walked out and then everyone's standing around and they don't know what to say like people are, you know that place where where grief is still mixed in with shock and right? everyone's nervous and there's like this this kind of horror on people's faces and somebody just says says the words silky could you lead us and she knew exactly what they meant. This is my favourite moment ever. They, they come into a circle. They hold hands. They put arms around each other's shoulders. Their, their makeup is half done at this point, I should say. <laughs> They've got half a drag face on, half not. Some mascara had been disturbed by the emotions. It was, it was a beautiful sight so beautiful they stand around and this is what silky says she says as we stand here today with love joy and peace give us the strength to give the show beyond what's ever been given before give us the courage to go out and step outside of our element because we are the head and not the tail and all things shall be added unto us all right you you. I'm like I want to pray like that <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to you know I That power, because I saw what happened in that room. You know, there's grief. The grief didn't go away. They were still still crying. They were still sad. But it had turned from some kind of toxic grief into a grief that was connected to a deeper kind of peace. And how she did it? She used affirmations. I am the head and not the tail. And all things shall be added unto us. Affirming who we are. Scripture is full of these affirmations. This is, by the way, kind of a a Pentecostal spiritual practice, affirmations, that's gone a little bit mainstream. Like, now you go to a motivational speaker and you'll be walking out with motivation. I always see, you know, there's TikToks and little kids going to school with their affirmations. They're like, I am strong and I am smart and I am. I love that. I absolutely love that. This tradition has a big history to it. And as I've been researching queer spiritual genius and the way that we express things, I'm like, what's the history of affirmations? Because one thing that I'm learning a lot is when I say I'm a Pentecostal, I'm talking about a black tradition. I'm talking about a tradition that has black... I grew up in a Pentecostal church in the western suburbs in in Blacktown, um, which, just to give you a a sense of Sydney, the word Blacktown is very misleading. Um, It was a very white congregation, very white congregation, and I didn't realize the wisdom that was being imparted to me, the spiritual practices that were being imparted to me, were practices that were developed on the cotton fields during slavery. And by people during segregation. And that spiritual power that they drew upon, then all of a sudden, you know, it's like the Elvis Presley thing. We just, oh yeah, I can sing that tune. And then we go off and we do where and we don't notice. So part of what I'm passionate about is actually citing the sources of my spiritual tradition. Finding where it comes from. This is where affirmations come from. I was reading a book by James Cone. It's called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It's It's an amazing book of theology. And James Cone notices the fact that during the age of lynching in the deep south, during the Jim Crow era, a a lot of women of colour didn't get their stuff published, but they would tell it to one another, and they would share it. So a big part of this book is Cone listens to women and talks to women and writes down the oral traditions that have been passed on to capture what they said, and he talks about this... this really got me when, when I read this. When a lynch mob was starting to, to rise up in the South, there was this pattern that there'd be unattached young black men who were able to flee. But typically, most black women were responsible for some children, so they had to stay. And I thought That's, that in itself is, a, is an education that I need some time to process. But what he said was that these women who had to stay the ground in fear of their own lives against a lynch mob that's rising up, learned how to use affirmations of faith to ground themselves. That's the origin of this tradition. He says, the faith of black women gave them courage to fight, patience when they could not, and the hope that whatever they did, God would keep them from sinking down. And he named some of the affirmations that were really, really common in that era. God will make a way where there isn't a way. You'll know that, right? God will make a way where there isn't a way. God may not come when you want, but God is always right on time. That kind of an affirmation. Black women taught each other these affirmations in order to ground them. And then I just, this beautiful moment for me is 2022. There's a, Silky describes herself as a melanized plus sized queen, which I think is it's beautiful rhyming. Melanized is her word for black. She stands there and she draws on the affirmations that come from her foremothers in the deep south. That's where she's from. She channels their power and in that space transforms a room full of people who are going through toxic, unprocessed grief and uses it to transfer peace and hope, and love, and joy into that space. That's the power of identity. That I believe that's what Ephesians 1 is. Because those folks were living in some darkness as well. They were living in some oppression. And Paul's imparting to them, this is who you are. You're living in fear. You're living in persecution. We can talk about all of that. I've got some chapters to go. But chapter 1, I'm just reminding you who you are. I'm not going to just say, to the saints... I'm giving that a chapter. I'm doing all of that work. And so I've been been learning this stuff about my spiritual history. But you know what? The the phrase that I've come across a lot in this study has been black spiritual genius. And it's got me wondering about queer spiritual genius. And I read a book by Episcopalian priest uh, and and lesbian woman, Reverend Elizabeth Edmund. To the Episcopalians here in the room and Anglicans, Thank you for Reverend Elizabeth Edmond. That is one of the, my favourite thing to come out of your tradition except maybe some some beautiful cathedrals that I've been in. (laughs) She wrote a book called Queer Virtue which is all about queer spiritual genius and she named some of our spiritual strengths. Identity, risk, touch, pride, authenticity are a few of those words. They're our strengths and I don't know if this last story I'm going to tell is going to count as fun fact number five. This... <laughs> I'm a little mortified about this story um, because I opened this book and chapter one, first line she writes is, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And I was like, that's a weird place to start because I grew up in a family. I told you a little bit about Blacktown. I told you a little bit about white Pentecostals. I grew up with Johnny Cash on the LP every night as I was going to sleep, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, I never got any Dolly Parton, I feel very cheated about that. (laughs) More leaning into the boys in the whole country and western scene. She said, Johnny Cash's voice, and then she describes it, she said it has a deep, oozing, raw, masculine confidence with bare pain. And I said, that never occurred to me, but it fits. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And then she said, I was five years old when I heard that and I knew I was a lesbian. <laughs> not because not because she was turned off. That came out slightly wrong. I didn't, should have planned my phrasing a bit better. She said, that deep oozing masculine, I can't say those words. I'm, that's, I was okay writing it out in my notes. I can't say oozing on stage anymore. I'm just going She heard that and she resonated with it. Identity, right? She said, ah, oh, I'm deep and masculine and oozing like that, or, or... <laughs> and that started her journey, she said, of my identity, which was a complete mystery. Like all I knew about my identity was hello, I'm Johnny Cash. That was it. And then she grew up and she was a lesbian episcopalian priest, and it all made sense. It all came together. And here's the funny thing. I didn't realise, but I think I also knew I was gay when I heard those exact words. Again, not for the reason. Because <laughs> I would have been like five, and I was like, I am nothing like that at all. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've come across... I hope. Please be honest with your feedback, but I don't think I've come across as oozing raw confidence this evening, <laughs> I just remember those low, deep, gruff voices and saying, I don't think I'm going to grow up the way I'm supposed to. If that's, if, that's what, if that's what masculinity looks like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's for me, right? Because we're queer people. From a very young age, we start working on our gender identity. Like Other people are trying to figure out how Lego blocks go together. We're like, what am I? <laughs> <laughs> That builds a kind of genius into us, right? We've done that work. And this is also where I believe that uh, in the LGB, the T and the non-binary, NB, have a special kind of genius to offer us. Because here's another theologian you need to know about, Austin Hartke, uh, wrote uh, um, Transforming, a book on transgender theology. I was going to get the Kindle thing so I could have it on ebook here. In two weeks, they're releasing it with a study guide. So wait and then get it with the study guide. But he says trans people have a unique gift in understanding what it means when God changes someone's name. Because that happens all throughout scripture. We know what a name change is. We know Sarah and Abraham had their names given to them. Naomi went through a Mara period and then came back to Naomi again later in life. Peter had an experience too. Peter, who was Jesus' flakiest disciple, and who was given a name. Somebody said at the beginning, um, we won't pinch anything. And I thought that was really sweet, but I've already pinched something. A whole bunch of rocks outside. Put it back! Put it back! I'll put it back later. I'll put it back... This was his name. This is the guy who every time a situation gets uncomfortable, he starts interrupting with something that doesn't make any sense, right? Can anyone relate to that? You know who... (laughs) This is the guy who Jesus is just beautifully handing himself over to be given for the life of the world. And he goes, I'm going to cut someone's ear off. (laughs) This is the perfect moment to do that. This is... When he himself identifies that Jesus is the Messiah, two verses later has taken him aside to talk him out of it. Don't do it, man, don't. You don't want to do that. That's no good. This guy, this guy is flaky. This guy saw the resurrected Christ and then said, I'm going back home to go fishing. That that was his response in that situation. And Jesus named him Rock. And every time I read the Gospels, I think they must have thought that was hilarious to call this guy, this rock over here, right? That's the tone that it's written in. But this is his gift. This is the name that was given to him. And shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, he founded the church in Jerusalem. And in a couple of years, he hands it over to James and says, I'm going to the capital of the known world and I'm starting a church there. And he built the Roman church, which then transformed into the global Catholic church This guy was a foundation stone. This guy was legendary. He was given an identity when it made no sense and spent his life living into it. And in Revelation 2.17, Jesus said, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows, except the one who experiences it, the one who receives it. God has a name for each and every one of us, a new identity that is going to be revealed to us, and it's given to us as a gift. It's given to us as a gift. We don't have to believe it about ourselves yet. We don't have to prove it to anyone else. (laughs) Peter knew he was the rock, cutting off the ear. He He was just kind of learning what would... Maybe a rock would do that. No, I don't think maybe a rock wouldn't do that. Just, I'm just trying out my identity, right? I don't like Johnny Cash. You know, I know some people who are going to grow up to be lesbian Episcopalian priests. They love Johnny Cash. I don't feel like that's right for me. I could relate to Dolly Parton much more strongly. <laughs> it's a gift. It's a gift that's given to us. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do anything to prove it have to receive it. And this is queer spiritual genius. We've been learning how to do that since we were kids and we can lead the church in understanding what it means for Abraham and Sarah to be given their new names. What it means for Naomi to go on a journey of discovery and say Mara, no actually Naomi's good, I'm going to sit with that. To know what it means to to be Simon and to be flaky and just to have someone say you're a rock and say yeah it doesn't make sense yet but but that's who i am and we're going to sing i asked um i asked for one special song uh you said by lauren daigle and i'm going to pray a few things over us but if you if you want to play the tune for that you could play the tune that would be great pentecostals always do this at the end of the preaching the musicians come back and they just start to kind of warm up warm up the atmosphere a little bit I just want to pray over us. Whole, I picked 10, and it was very hard to pick like, my favorite identity affirmations from the New Testament. But, and feel free to stretch if you want to. If I'm going to receive something from God, you know, I like to have my hands on my heart. I like to maybe stand up. I like to have, you, can, you can be however or wherever that you want. And I just want to say these affirmations over you, and I want you to decide whether they're for you or maybe not yet, but you want to work on it. If it's something that you relate to, I'm going to start with "I'm God's masterpiece." That's my touchstone. That's where I go to to the beginning. I want to start with, "This is for you, my friend. I am not condemned, and I'm forgiven. I'm not condemned. Romans eight one. I wasn't condemned to begin with. <laughs> Nothing can condemn me. That's not possible because I'm God's beloved." And I belong. I belong. I am a member of the household of God. I'm holy. I'm a saint. I have wisdom from God. To those of you who don't trust your perspective, right? You have the mind of Christ. You have wisdom from God. Nothing you do is useless. Scripture teaches us that everything we do in our life is going to be used by God, right? The stuff we're still cringing about, you know, the stuff that we think about late at night, we go, oh, why did I do that? Why did I... God's going to do something beautiful with that anyway. And you don't have to worry about it. God's taking care of that. You are free, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You can approach God with freedom and confidence and with boldness you belong to the light and all your needs are met according to the glorious riches that Christ has for you you have strong roots that go down if you ever feel a little bit wavering you have strong roots you are being made complete being transformed into someone who is whole and who is holy. God, thank you for this space. Thank you for this power, this queer spiritual genius here in this room. It's been working love, creating joy, creating peace. We are the head and not the tail, and all things will be added unto us. Amen.